the difference between contemplation and meditation. I'll just briefly repeat that a contemplation always contains a factor which is true for the whole of mankind or the whole of the universe, the whole of existence, or for all that we know, and we use it to refer with it to ourselves. It's all very well if it's true for everybody else, but is it true for me? And as we do that, we become aware of our own reaction to it. The reaction to that particular truth. Maybe we don't even think it's true, all right? So our reaction is disbelief. Or we don't want to know about it. So our reaction is resistance. Or we think we know all about it anyway. So our reaction is disinterest, indifference. Or our reaction may be interest. Or our reaction may be recognizing the fact that it's important to have a personal relationship to that truth. Watching every reaction and knowing what it means. Not thinking that that particular truth is not to be, is at fault or not to be considered, but watching one's own reaction that's all that matters. So the way we'll do it, I'll say the contemplation subject, and you repeat it after me so that you can remember it easier. And then I'll say something about it to help with the contemplation. And it is something that the only thing that's important is your own personal feeling about it, your understanding of it, your feeling for it. That's all that's important. They're called the five daily recollections because the Buddha recommended that each person recollects these five factors of existence every single day so that when they do happen and say as they undoubtedly will will that we do not think that they are a personal tragedy but that we recognize them to be the laws of nature and that we eventually possibly flow with the laws of nature rather than try to change them, which we can't succeed in anyway. We've tried so much already outside of ourselves and made a fair bit of a mess of it, and we're trying the same inside of ourselves. And the mess that we create there is unhappiness, grief, dislike, rejection, or just plain forgetting about it it won't happen to me. So the five daily recollections are truisms, 
which we need to remember and relate to. And they're not designed to create any unhappiness. They are strictly designed to create within us a feeling for that flow of life that we are all subject to. So in order to start, please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. And please repeat after me. I'm of the nature to decay. I have not got beyond decay. The first thing to do is to investigate whether this is true. And the second thing to investigate is whether oneself is actually remembering that daily. And the third thing to investigate is, what's my reaction to it? Am I indifferent? Do I dislike it? Or do I take it into consideration in all things that I think, say, and do? That there is change and decay that nothing within me, nothing of me, remains the same. I'm of the nature to be diseased. I have not got beyond disease. The word disease conjures up in our mind physical illness, but in reality it means unease, dis-ease. So it affects our mind, it affects our body. We need to investigate whether this is true 
a true statement that we're subject to that, have not got beyond it. And as we find that it is true, do we consider it a major tragedy, a major sorrow? Do we accept it as one of the laws of nature? And what does it show us about the ownership of this mind and body? Do we want dis-ease? And if we don't, why can't we avoid it? I'm of the nature to die. I have not got beyond death. Obviously, we don't have to inquire whether this is true. But what we do have to inquire is whether we are actually remembering that and whether we're actually taking that fact into consideration in our thinking, in our activities, in our plans, in our hopes, in our clinging and in our craving. And another thing we need to investigate is whether we're ready for it. And if not, why not?
all that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. Here we have to inquire whether this is true, has been true in the past, of those <coughs> situations, feelings, people, belongings, that have been dear and delightful to us, whether they have now changed or even vanished. And if this is true, then what of those situations, people, belongings, ideas, hopes, which are now dear and delightful to us, will they remain? And how do we feel about their nature of change and disappearance. I am the owner of my karma. Now, karma does not mean fate. To be the owner of one's karma means that we take responsibility for everything that happens to us because we have actually initiated it. We take responsibility for the results that happen to us. It does not mean destiny. It means cause and effect. We initiate the causes and the effects are ours. There's no one to blame. When we recognize that we actually are the effect, then we begin to take our life in our own hands.
I am heir to my karma. Now this will help us to recognize the fact that we can actually have the most important influence on our own inheritance. We are the makers of the inheritance and we are also inheriting it. we become aware of that and keep that as part of our mental process within, it means that we will become more careful. Related to my karma. This has to be understood to mean that this is the closest relationship we can ever have. We could also say, I am my karma. It's as close to us as our own skin. And if we don't come to terms with that relationship, our life remains haphazard. But if that relationship is understood and we take responsibility for it and strive for that which is good, then we will have a good relationship. I live supported by my karma. Again, we need to recognize the fact that cause and effect, which we ourselves are the makers of, is our life support. Whatever happens in our life, how we actualize, actualize it and how we live it is all intrinsically connected with thought, speech and action that we ourselves have done.
Whatever karma I shall do, that I will inherit. And that brings us to the present moment because karma is being made in all our waking hours and our inheritance is very often immediate. It can be helpful to investigate whether we can see a connection between our thoughts, speech and action and those things that are happening to us. It's usually only when one gets sick or when one starts meditating that one recognizes what a misery this body can be. Eh? Be nice to sit here without it. Mind would have it easier. But it's not supposed to be that easy, I guess. This contemplation which we have just done is something to do in your individual meditation time. Now, you don't have to remember each exact word in order to contemplate it. But it is very important to recognize the fact that each and every one of us is going in the same direction, namely to the grave. And it's only a matter of time, no matter how young one is. It's very limited, the time. And it pays to investigate what one is going to do with that limited time. Whether one wants to get a lot of things, not necessarily material, or whether one wants to give. The difference is, difference is one small wor word, but the actual difference is a world in between. The difference between get and give. And lies a world of difference. And since all our time is limited, there's no way that it isn't, it's very important to assess the time in its priorities. This is a very helpful contemplation for one's daily life. So you can do it here in the individual meditation time. The first four items of those five concern impermanence, change, the um, dissolution of this person. The fifth one is all about karma. 
karma as cause and effect. The whole of the teaching and in accordance with all valuable spiritual pathways goes towards purification. Without it, there is no spiritual path. Now, purification is a matter for the mind. And in the Buddha's language, in Pali, mind also encompasses heart, feeling. But in English, we have to make that distinction. So we'll say purification of heart and mind. And we have an immediate reconnection, uh, immediate connection to thinking and feeling. Now purification has many possibilities. And I have mentioned one of them already, namely the concentration. A concentration on the meditation subject purifies automatically because nothing negative can arise. We can't do two things at a time with the mind, although it appears as if we do. We even say, ah, leave me alone, I've got ten things on my mind. Well, we don't have them simultaneously, we can't do that but we can do it so quickly that it appears to be simultaneous. The Buddha said <clears throat> one can have 3,000 mind moments in the blink of an eyelid. Luckily, it's not quite that bad with us usually, but sometimes it seems that way, doesn't it? So this is the human condition. And concentration is one factor of purification. One which it happens automatically, which doesn't need any particular effort except the effort to concentrate. The more often we do it, naturally, the more purification happens. It builds up on each other. It also becomes easier. But we cannot rely strictly <clears throat> on our meditation practice because nobody does that all day long and even if they did it probably wouldn't amount to much one of the great meditation masters in North Thailand Northeast Thailand who was asked once by a Western student whether it was helpful to sit in meditation a long, long time, answered, said, chicken sits three weeks. All it gets is little chickens. So it's not the length of time one sits. It's the quality of the sit, not the quantity. So we have to have other purification systems then, other than the concentration alone that we can arouse in meditation 
hopefully can arouse it to the point where it's really meaningful one day. And the Buddha said, the one way for the purification of beings, for the elimination of pain, grief, and lamentation, for the final elimination of all dukkha, for entering the noble path, for realizing Nibbana, is mindfulness. Now this is the only mental factor, mindfulness, that he ever said something so important about. And therefore we have to recognize the fact that this is what we have to train. It sounds dull and it seems to be uninteresting and terribly repetitive, but it's none of these. It just sounds like that. Mindfulness is something that we train in our meditation, but we have to use it in daily living. It actually means to be in the here and now. Now this is one of the other immediate benefits we have from meditation, whether we get concentrated or not for any length of time. We are learning to be here now. We cannot pay attention to a breath which is already gone, nor can we pay attention to a breath that's yet to come. We must pay attention to the breath which is now. We have no choice. Or we start dreaming and thinking and fantasizing. But if we pay any attention at all, it's got to be now. From that, we could learn, if we paid attention, that there is only this one moment. There is no other. The past is irrevocably gone. The future is the yet to come. It never actually does come because when it, when it actually arrives here, it's called the present. Tomorrow is conjecture. When it happens, it's called today. And not only does tomorrow never come or the future, we only have one moment at a time in which to meditate, in which to do good, in which to get insight, in which to be helpful, in which to love or do all the opposites. That one moment that we've got. Now this is something we have to learn in the meditation practice because there it is essential. Meditation doesn't happen unless that has been learned this moment only. In order to help our meditation, we have to also practice that outside of meditation. The two have to be interwoven, the two have to help each other, meditation and daily living, because we only have the one mind. And if in daily living we're totally distracted, distraught, under stress, tense, worried, fearful, worrying about the future, remembering the past, surely we can't expect that same mind
to sit down in the morning or in the evening and then all of a sudden become concentrated on the here and now. That's an unrealistic expectation which can't possibly happen. It's one mind which does all the things that we have now already noticed since yesterday afternoon. Interesting, isn't it, what the mind can do? We call it a magician. It can, call, can, can pull a rabbit out of any hat. It can make truth out of the greatest absurdities, and it usually does. So we have to learn mindfulness in daily living. Here in this retreat, where it's quiet, where there are no outer disturbances, there are only the inner disturbances, this is the ideal situation to learn it, at least to give it um, very meaningful goal so that we may be able to take some of that home with us. The first foundation of mindfulness, the first base, is this body. Now the body, we can touch it, we can see it, it uh, often presents difficulties, it also has all the sense contacts so that we get also pleasure from it, and it is something that we identify with. We look in the mirror and we say, hmm, not looking too well today. I have to get out in the sun a bit, look a bit better then. And we look in the mirror ten years later, looking <coughs> entirely different and say, hmm, looking quite nice today. <laughs> and it's still me, but it's ten years later and it looks entirely different. So we identify with this, this is me, and we're very concerned with it. We don't like to scratch it or bruise it or bump it. We don't like to have any illness in it or any pain. We like to feed it well, as well as we can think of, healthily, give it good food. We certainly have to give it a rest at night, we give it some exercise, we wash it, have it wear clean clothes, and we spend a lot of time making enough money so that it has all the comforts that we can possibly afford. And how does the mind feel? Quite comfortable? quite clean, quite rested, nothing of the sort. It feels just as uncomfortable as if it didn't have a roof over its head. It doesn't feel rested at all because it's been thinking all day and dreaming all night. And not, no way can it feel clean because it's been thinking anything that came to mind, negative, positive, whatever it may be, and also it's been fed whatever is available. Now many of us are probably interested in health food, not everybody, but many are, health <coughs> food for the body. 
I'd like you to contemplate the fact that health food for the mind is far more important. I don't, like, don't want to stop you from going to the health food shop. By all means, keep on buying the stuff. But I'd like you to think about health food for the mind. And recognize the fact that we would never eat anything that we would see is dirty or poisonous or has any kind of factor that could make us ill. Are we that careful with the mind? So we have all these attentions that we give to the body. And obviously we have to. We have to clean it. We have to give it a rest. We have to give it exercise. And we have to give it medicine when it's sick and all the rest of it. But by doing all that, we also have a lot of activity with the body. It moves a lot. It does a lot of things. And here is the ideal moment to watch the movements of the body. Watching the breath is movement of the body. And here we can see two, one thing to start out with. That while mind and body are dependent upon each other, they are still two separate things. The body breathes and the mind watches. You can't have the mind breathe and the body watch. It's as simple as that. They're interdependent, they're interconnected, but there are two things happening. One is watching, one is breathing. This is a very important fact. It sounds like a truism. It's so simple. Why, why do, do we have to say it? Because if we experience it, it will give us cause to recognize the fact that while this body is very important because it carries our mind around, the mind's even more important. There's no comparison between the two. The Buddha said mind is a master, body is a servant. So the first thing we do is we watch the breath in meditation, which is body, and recognize the fact that there are two, mind and body. Walking meditation, we watch the walking, the movement, and again we have two, mind and body. One is watching, one is walking. Now in walking meditation, next time you do it, I'd like you to become aware of something, namely the intention. You might have to do it even slower than before doesn't matter. Speed is totally immaterial. Watch the body with the walking following the dictates of the mind. So do it slow enough to become aware of the fact that the mind says walk and then the body doing it. And then the mind says, hey, you only got five steps out of this one, five movements. Come on, let's watch six. Or the mind says, oh, how boring, I'm going to stop now. And you stand still. <coughs> Watch the mind giving the orders and the body actually doing it. Now one has to slow down for that. This is the ideal situation to slow down. If you do that uh, in, in, the, in the middle of uh, a busy street, city center or some place like that, I mean, it's going to be a nuisance. But here you can do it. 
So here is the ideal moment to watch this. So mind gives the orders, body follows. Sometimes mind gives orders and body can't make it. Also possible. But rare. Because mind already knows what the body can handle. About, not quite, but. So watch all that. This is the first instance of getting insight. This is the very first step into insight. Seeing how these two interconnected parts of us are actually having totally different functions. And there's nothing to believe or disbelieve. Do it. The Buddha didn't want anyone to believe him. He also didn't want a, just a plain refusal. He wanted people to try it out for themselves. He knew so well that if one actually practices what he preached, one would become very happy. But just as today, even then, people didn't practice. He said then, two and a half thousand years ago, this generation of men, they are all after sense pleasures. Now, that's two and a half thousand years ago. It's like yesterday, isn't it? Or today. No difference. We're always doing the same thing. And yet, he patiently and compassionately repeated his teaching over and over again to anyone who would listen. So don't believe or disbelieve. Do it and see whether it's true. Watch the walking, watch the breathing, and see whether there are two. It's the first step into insight. That's where insight starts. Now, mindfulness has the factor of purification that's our first um, line of defense, purification, because, again, when we're mindful, totally attentive is mindful, we can't be negative. So there's a purification system going on. This mindfulness can become habit. And when it becomes habit, it makes life so much easier. First, on a very mundane level. We don't have to look for our car keys. We know exactly where we've put them. We don't have to strain ourselves to find the things around the house which we can't remember where we've put them because we do remember where we've put them. We don't, don't forget our appointments. We don't get there late. We uh, don't stumble over things because we're watching our steps. Everything becomes a little easier. And not only that, but watching the physical movement, which is our first act of mindfulness, creates a space of non-worry and non-fear because we are moving a lot with our body in our daily lives. And there's so much to be attentive to It doesn't just purify because one watches how one walks. And if we practice that in daily living, obviously our meditation will become much easier because this is what 
meditation is all about. Being attentive now to this one moment, to this one action of breathing. That's all. Being attentive to this one thing. So if we practice that now here, while we're here, we become aware of getting up, of moving our body to stand up. We become aware of moving our body to sit down. We become aware of using our body to walk out of this hall or into this hall. We're becoming aware of closing the door or opening the door. That may sound boring. It's nothing of the kind. It's almost as if one has used a slow motion lens to make everything stand out in high relief. What we usually just go along without paying any attention to because it's so uninteresting, it's boring, it's not important. All that stands out now like a slow motion camera where every movement can be seen. And that's very interesting. And the mind doesn't want to go anywhere else if we actually do it. Now, obviously, in the beginning of this kind of practice, one has to remind oneself. So one has to tell oneself over and over again, be mindful, watch your steps. We've got huge signs in places where they have little steps. Watch your step. All right, watch your step. That's exactly what it's all about. Mindfulness is knowing only. It doesn't have any judgment in it. It doesn't have any discrimination. That is another aspect which I'll explain in a moment. Mindfulness is just knowing only. The first time I heard this sentence, I'll never forget it, it's years ago. I heard it from a Thai monk whose English wasn't all that wonderful. And I didn't understand what it was meaning. Couldn't understand the meaning, knowing only, knowing only. What's it mean, knowing only? It just means to be fully present now with this movement, knowing that one is making a movement, whether it's hand, whether it's feet, whatever it may be. In the morning, knowing that one is opening one's eyes. Now that's one that escapes practically everybody. It's not easy. But it's nice. Now if your eyes are already open and you haven't noticed it, close them again and then open <laughs> and become aware of the fact. Aha, okay, day is starting. Next thing is getting the legs out of bed. Watching that, nothing else. Just getting legs out of bed. Because nothing will say in the mind, then, oh, it's much too early, and look, it's still dark, and who wants to meditate this early? And nothing like that. And did he have to ring the bell already? I bet he's at least five minutes early. Nothing like that. Just legs out of bed, standing up, opening the door, walking to the toilet, being on the toilet, flushing the toilet, walking away, 
all of that and the mind is at peace because there's nothing that can disturb it if it stays like that and then when the monk sits down to meditate the mind has already the quality of attention and the quality of being non-worried the problems have been left behind this why it's a purification system without that without this daily mindfulness meditation won't flourish mindfulness start flourishing when the meditation has taken hold catch 22 again there's just no two ways about it the two just work together one's got to try both ways and not only is the benefit in the meditation the benefit is of course in our daily living one becomes far more efficient because while one is doing one thing one isn't thinking of the other ten things one still has to do so the efficiency factor in one's own life is multiplied many times and one makes far less mistakes naturally being human we make mistakes but less everything is a little easier it seems to flow mindfulness appears to be like an oil that we put on troubled waters and we're just attentive to whatever is happening now obviously it can't always be the body but at this point in time I think I would like to have you just practice from now until I speak about the next factor of mindfulness watching the bodily movement the Buddha said who doesn't become mindful of the body cannot enter into the deathless the deathless is another word for Nibbana Nibbana which is the purpose and goal of Buddhist meditation Nibbana is not something I'm going to discuss right now because it's not worth discussing it's only worth achieving so but he made the statement that the attention to the body is so important not only do we get that insight which I already explained not only does our life become easier not only do we have the purification the automatic purification of not being negative we have the help for our meditation and we have a totally different relationship to ourselves people hurry along they're under stress they want to get somewhere they want to get whatever they're doing they want to get it over with so they can relax and then what do they do turn on the TV or lie in a deck chair and what does the mind do it's still completely engaged with all its usual matters so one has been hurrying in order to relax and then of course the relaxation doesn't work either because there hasn't been any preparation for it there's no need to hurry to get these things over with that one is doing whatever is happening whatever one is doing it must be worth doing otherwise one wouldn't be doing it and if it isn't worth doing one should stop and only with mindfulness do we have enough 
understanding of what we're doing in order to recognize the fact that this is actually what I'm doing right now. So that's all that's important. Everything is important enough to be done. Nothing is important enough to worry about. The other factor which mindfulness will show us quite clearly is impermanence. Now if we pay good attention to our movements, and I've already mentioned that for the walking meditation, but that holds true for all our movements. Every single one is impermanent. Every single one has to stop in order to be a movement. Continuity overshadows impermanence because we keep on breathing again and again we don't see the impermanence of the breath because we wake up every morning and start the whole thing all over again we don't see the impermanence of every single moment that we live in mindfulness will help us to do that it can't fail. If we really pay attention, we will see that everything that has started has to stop. When I lift my hand, I have to drop it again. I can't keep it there. It's physically impossible. When I've taken an in-breath, I have to breathe out. There's no way I can stop that. Everything we do has that built in. Only mindfulness will show us. That's the second step into insight. Now mindfulness has, as its factor, as its quality, both calm and insight. Insight, as I've already explained, and calm because there's no worry, no fear. There's nothing that will obstruct the flow of mindfulness other than our discursive thinking. I'd like you to be very clear also on the, on the difference between being mindful, contemplating, and discursive thinking. It's very important to get to know oneself as if one is looking into a completely clear and clean mirror. Only then can we practice properly, only then can we make changes. Contemplation, mindfulness, and discursive thinking. Now, contemplation and mindfulness are obviously two things what we want to do. Discursive thinking is what we usually do. So it's a change in our mental habit. This is why I told you to label, to get to know the habit patterns in the mind. Contemplation means we stay on a subject and relate it to our own reaction to that subject, like to our own death. Mindfulness means that we are focused on what is actually happening, movement, stillness, whatever is happening. And discursive thinking is 
planning, hoping, worrying, fearing, entertaining, fantasizing and dreaming, and a lot more. That's discursive thinking. And it has the escape factor built in, and that's why it's so popular. But we don't have anything to escape from. We are exactly what we ought to be. And we have everything built in for happiness and peace. We just can't get at it. But it's right there. There's nothing to escape from. The escape factor which is built in into discursive thinking is our way of trying to deal with every moment. Mindfulness is the only way to deal with it which is productive. Mindfulness does not have any unhappiness in it because it doesn't have any judgment in it. Now, there is a combination of mindfulness and clear comprehension. The Buddha mentions the two together, Sati and Sampanyanya. He mentions them together because they are sort of companions. Mindfulness is that which knows. And I'd like to emphasize once more, please, while you're here, now, until we speak about the next factor of mindfulness, use mindfulness of physical action. Clear comprehension is the one that judges. And that has four aspects. And it's a very important thing to practice in daily living. But it will only be effective and productive if the mind has become meditative. A meditative mind does not mean that one meditates eight hours a day. It means a mind which is introspective. Clear comprehension has as its first step to know the purpose. Now in this case, the purpose of the physical action. Every time we are mindful of doing something, what's the purpose of it? If one sees, as can happen quite easily, that there's absolutely no purpose to it, we will definitely refrain from it. But if there is a purpose to it, like walking to this meditation hall, where there certainly is a purpose to it, isn't there? Well, then we will go on with it. The second criteria of clear comprehension is, am I using the most skillful means? What are my most skillful means to accomplish the purpose I have in mind? Now, if the purpose has already been considered to be useful, valuable, now what about the means? Is it useful to run? Is it useful to go on tiptoe? Or is it useful to walk quietly? Is it skillful to be so quiet that I won't disturb anybody? Is it skillful to come at the right time? All these things are, have a part in 
one's consideration about physical action. Is it skillful not to bang the door because it might disturb somebody? All these things. And the third factor of consideration in clear comprehension is, is my purpose and are the means which I have in mind to use, are they within the Dhamma? Now obviously coming to the meditation hall and going quietly is within the Dhamma, within the teaching of the Buddha, within a spiritual path, within a um, within a truth factor. But there may be other things which one intends to do, which may have a factor, inbuilt factor of not being concerned with the teaching at <coughs> all. Maybe if one has the intention of um, going off into the town and buying an ice cream cone. Now one could consider that and say, well, purpose, hmm, not so bad. Want an ice cream cone, so that's my purpose of getting in the car. Skillful means, yeah, sure, I need the car. Well, what about getting this ice cream cone? What's better, having a meditation session or getting an ice cream cone? So there comes the consideration whether the sensual pleasure or the spiritual growth are more important. One has to use one's own wisdom. Nobody will tell one. And if one thinks the, the uh, sensual pleasure is more important, well, then one gets the ice cream cone. Then one needs to, of course, at the same time, maybe have enough understanding to recognize the fact that maybe this is a very fleeting pleasure, very impermanent. And maybe the meditation might be something that would give a greater satisfaction. It's all up to oneself. Now the purpose and the skillful means have to be within the Dhamma. There are, there's no end that justifies the means. They both have to be within the Dhamma. And the fourth factor is an investigation whether the purpose which one had in mind has really been accomplished. Now, in the case of the ice cream cone, the purpose was I want, to, I want to have some happiness and pleasure. And after having eaten the ice cream cone and be finished with it, then one has to investigate. Did I really get the happiness and pleasure that I had in mind? If the answer is yes, one will continue to have ice cream cones, of course. It's entirely up to one's own wisdom. Now these four factors slow one's impulsive, instinctive reactions down. One gets slowed down, which is extremely important. There's no hurry in anything. We are not going anywhere, we're already there. We're here, we're human beings and we're trying our best and there's nothing to do and nothing to go. Being nobody, going nowhere, there's no hurry. So it's quite all right to slow oneself down. And so if we, before we embark upon anything, 
use these three criteria of purpose, skillful means, within the truth of a spiritual teaching, and then having done it, investigate the result, we have a very guaranteed guideline for all our physical actions. Be they very minute and unimportant, such as eating ice cream cone, or far more important, such as getting married or divorced. All these things can be used under those uh, aspects. Physical mindfulness is especially important and easy to use when eating. It's a very good situation for mindfulness. Picking up the spoon, dipping it into the food, lifting it to the mouth, taking the food into the mouth, chewing it, tasting it, swallowing it. And if one actually does it like that, one needs less food and one doesn't get carried away so much with food. Food is something we do get carried away with. If it doesn't taste good, we get, become grouchy and grumpy. And if it's very good, we're very delighted and would like a bit more. So that particular way of using the food can be a deterrent to both. Becoming grumpy about non-good tasting food and becoming delighted about good tasting food. That doesn't mean that we have to eat stuff that we can't digest. But the like and the dislike is actually our passport to continual problems. That's our residence visa, you might say. As long as we like and dislike our experiences and everything that happens around us and in us, with us and without us, so long we're going to have the craving to get rid of and the craving to keep. And there won't be any peacefulness. So we can make a small attempt at something which we do three times a day, namely eating, and see whether we can eat so mindfully that liking and disliking is actually not in the picture. That sounds very simple, but it isn't. I'd like you to try it. I'd like you to try being attentive to the physical action and see whether like and dislike at that time is at least minimized. It won't be eliminated, but minimized. There's another aspect to it. There's a lovely story of a Zen master who lived together with a number of his students and after a few years, one of the students 
finally got up enough courage to say to the Zen master, Sir, you say you're enlightened, but what makes you different from us? The Zen master said, When I eat, I eat, and when I sleep, I sleep. And the student said, But sir, I do exactly the same thing. And the Zen master said, When unenlightened people eat, they think a thousand thoughts. When unenlightened people sleep, they dream a thousand dreams. But when I eat, I eat. And when I sleep, I sleep. Now I want you to check that out at lunchtime and see whether that Zen master is correct. When unenlightened people eat, they think a thousand thoughts. You don't have to count them. <laughs> Just see whether it's true. Mindfulness keeps us out of that trap. Then we can eat while eating. We can wash dishes while washing dishes. Now, I presume somebody has a job here of washing dishes. Is that so? Yes. Okay. Excellent opportunity for practicing mindfulness. Knowing what the hand is doing, wiping, cleaning, putting it, the dish down, picking up the next one, cleaning it, wiping it, putting it down, and so forth. Instead of, I don't know why they're using so many dishes here. <laughs> and I always seem to, to catch that kind of a job. Well, next time I'll be more careful. <laughs> Nothing like that. Just picking it up and putting it down and picking it up and putting it down. No worries, no fears, no problems. When the hand is washing dishes, the mind is also washing dishes. That's all. It's totally attentive. Not only do we not worry and fear or, or get upset, angry, we don't break so many dishes, and it's much easier, goes much faster, and it does not appear to be a chore. It's just an activity. The great difference between chores and activities. We all have to have activities, otherwise our bodies will deteriorate completely. But most of the time, or many times, we will find that we think that this activity is really um, a nuisance and it's taking us away from the time we could spend so nicely, maybe in meditation or on the beach or wherever else we would like to be. But that's a misconception. Whatever it is that we're doing, if we're doing it just like that, with the mind and the body in the same place, the mind watching, the body doing, the mind giving the orders, the body obeying, then it's time well spent on the spiritual path. Nothing could help us more in our meditation. So if you now, when you leave the hall and walk to the dining room and sit down to eat and then get up again and then have maybe some kitchen duty or do individual meditation and then go for your rest. If you use attention on the physical action, you will first of all find that if you're not used to doing that, 
It's not as easy as it sounds. You'll catch yourself after 15 minutes saying, hey, wait a minute, there was something I was supposed to do. What was that now? Ah, mindfulness, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) And then when you do do it, actually stay with it for a little while, like five minutes or something, you'll find that the world around you has disappeared. There's complete peace. There's nothing happening. Everything's fine. Because you're only paying attention to what you're actually doing. So please try it out. And also, it, if one does it often enough, it certainly improves the meditative practice. And that's what we're here for. There are three other ways of being mindful, but I will not explain those now. I'll explain those in the evening because I think you have enough to do with this one. Also, in your individual meditation time, yes, for those of you who don't have kitchen duty, you have an hour individual time and then have a rest period and there'll be a gong for the rest period. Use some time for contemplation, just as we've done. Now I'd like to give you some time now to ask any questions that you have in mind. Yes. How does mindfulness apply when you're reading or When you're reading? Mm, well, have you never read a book, got to the end of the page and couldn't remember a word you read? No. Lack of mindfulness. Got to be right focused on what you're doing. The mind can't go in many places all at once. What are you writing an essay about? Give a for instance. Well, an English novel. About an English novel? Well, you've got to have your mind on the English novel. You can't have it on an American novel. You've got to have it on the English novel. <laughs> right there. There are, three, there are three other ways, but your body is also what you see, so when you read, it's what you see. And when you, when you think about it, that's another aspect of mindfulness. I said there are three more I'll t- talk about another time. Try the body one, okay? You're not going to write an essay while you're here, are you? <laughs> no, okay. Try the body one. <laughs> what else? Anything else? Yes. All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. And you need to investigate whether that's so or not. Whether that has been so in the past. And if it has been so in the past, then what about that what is now? Because that is our clinging to all the things that we like and that are dear to us. And this clinging is our great problem. 
because it, nothing stays. In, in other words, the Buddha said that non-clinging is Nibbana. So there he gives us a way of looking at our clinging. Anything else? Yes. When you're being mindful, um, is, it, is the matter of being um, absorbed in the, in the focus of, of what you're doing excluded from the outside world, or do you have to embrace the outside world as well? Or is that just a refinement? Sometimes you have to embrace the outside world, like when you're crossing a busy street. I mean, if you're engrossed in your footsteps, I don't think it's going to be very safe. I mean, you have to use common sense also. But if you're, for instance, uh, eating, I don't think you need to be engaged in the outside world at all. You just stay with that one action. The same goes for washing dishes. But when you're outside in the world and there are things happening, you have to pay attention, certainly, in order to actually stay alive. So it's a matter of whatever is happening around you. But the real mindfulness, the one which we want to use in meditation, is the one that stays one-pointed in one spot. Well, decay, disease, and death. That's the first three, and then this one that we I just said. And the fifth one is karma. I'm the owner of my karma. Decay, disease, and death is your own, and whatever is delightful and dear to you. And then the fifth one is karma. You don't have to know all the words. I mean, the words themselves are not, you know, important. You just have to know the content, so to say. Anything else? So everything quite clear, wonderful, or totally modeled, or? <laughs> um, for this afternoon's um, interview, there's one spot open, because one person put his name down twice. So number four, the number four spot, I hung that up again for this afternoon, is open for someone to put their name in for this afternoon. Also, uh, there appear to be 52 people here, but I am missing three of the sheets of um, name, address, meditation experience. Has anybody not filled out a sheet? One, anymore? Two, three, four, five. Goodness, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> it's getting worse and worse. <laughs> well, Okay, all, all of you who have not filled out a sheet for your uh, name and, and your meditation experience, um, please wait here a moment and I'll bring you an empty one which you can fill out, all right? Do you still have any empty ones? You give them back. So I have them. Okay. I'll bring you an em empty sheets to fill out. Please, all of you that haven't filled it out. And then we'll see exactly how many there are. We don't have that many beds, do we? Where are they all sleeping? <laughs> I see. <laughs> all right. Okay. So there's one spot for this afternoon, and I'll bring those sheets. Okay. Any other questions? Anything 
about your meditation. Yes. I, I can't hear. Fear of pain. Uh, do you have that? Are you afraid of it or what? In general. You don't mean in the sitting. Hmm? In sitting too. Does the pain come very quickly when you sit down? How quickly? After 10 minutes. And does it, is it so that you can't concentrate? Is it so bad that you can't concentrate? Sometimes. Sometimes, okay. So what do you do? Try to ignore it. Is that successful? Sometimes. Sometimes. Is it successful for the whole rest of the period? I mean, 10 minutes to 45, that's, that's 35 minutes of pain. Uh, is it successful for the whole 35 minutes? Sorry? Until the end. Yeah, about the end. Till then you can manage. Right. Um, <coughs> what do you do? Do you move? Do you uh, change your position or what? Yes. And several times, isn't it? Hmm. And then you can manage or what? So where does the fear come in? Because, I mean, if you're moving and can manage, where's the fear? When does that appear? Sorry? When the pain comes, then you get fearful. Fearful of what? Have you investigated? Okay, find out. What am I afraid of? It may not even be fear. It may be anger. It may be rejection. Because if, it, if it's fear, it's got to be fear of something. It may be dislike. It may be anything. So find out exactly what it is. What kind of a mental state it is. And see why it is there. Investigate into it. Because it may be able to give you a lot of... Um, insightful answers it's quite possible because um, that kind of pain that we get in sitting is not bad enough to be afraid of there are much other there are much greater pains that the body can have this is nothing compared to what a body can have so it may not be fear at all maybe something else maybe dislike which would be more logical you know, I mean, we all dislike our discomforts. So make a very, a very exact investigation, okay? To see what it is. And question the answers you get. Make that a new question. May show you quite an interesting insight. Okay? Anything else? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that at all, Noriko. What was that? <laughs> Tell me again. I'm finding, watching this, 
Right, right. Ah, yes, yes, okay. I thought that's what you said, but I wasn't quite sure. <laughs> okay, yes. There are many other ways of meditating. The Buddha taught 40 different meditation methods, and a method is a method by any name. Uh, the meditation actually only starts when we uh, let go of the method, but when our mind is occupied with problems or worries or fears um, or anything of that nature, to have the breath uh, as a meditation subject to become calm is an almost impossible and that's what Noriko is referring to that you can't concentrate on the breath at the moment so there are many other things we can do namely we can you instead of trying to become calm we can go for insight and I will give you an insight method to use I wasn't going to talk about it now but since you asked I think it's quite good because there may be others in the same boat, um, which has to do with the body and therefore fits very well into mindfulness of the body. Sit down and the first thing to do is become aware again of the touch of your body on, in the sitting position, the touch of the seat, the legs, the hands, your whole posture. Become aware of that. Next thing to do is to be contented and satisfied with your situation, with what you're doing. Be grateful that you can do it, that you can come to meditation. And then, imagine you have a zipper in front, in your skin, built in. Open the zipper. And then, take out all the bits and pieces that are inside your body. Now, you don't have to be a doctor or anything of that nature to have studied anatomy to know what's inside a body. Everybody knows most of the things we have in there. And when you do that, try to focus on what that particular piece looks like. If you've seen pictures of it, we all have. Kidneys, gallbladder, heart, um, the uh, uh, intestines, the um, blood, the bowel, all the stuff that's in there, lungs. Focus on what it looks like, take it out, try to get a feel what it feels like when you take it out and put it in front of you. And become aware of the empty spot inside. And do that until the whole thing is empty. And then get the bones, the whole skeleton. And one by one, piece by piece, put them also in front on a nice, neat little heap. <laughs> and the next thing that happens, of course, is that the skin collapses. So there's a bit of a shrivel thing sitting there. And then you have a look at those pieces that you took out and the bones and all the stuff that you know that's in there. And you look and see, which one is me? And the obvious answer will be, None of that. It's really not nice enough to be me. It's not very pleasant. It doesn't look nice, doesn't feel nice, doesn't even smell nice. And you look again and say, oh, no, that's not me. And then you take the whole kit and caboodle and stick it back inside and zip it up again. And all of a sudden, it's me, sitting very nicely, covered in skin. 
Where's the difference? This is a method for inside meditation. In the Buddha's dispensation, it's called the 32 parts of the body. He only mentions 31 usually, but it's still called 32 parts of the body, the 32nd being the brain, which is not in the, in the uh, discourse usually. And he did not mention a zipper. <laughs> That's my invention. Uh, I like that idea because it was uh, sort of, um, you know, a bit more the way we do things nowadays. So do it. It's an inside method. If you find, do it under such circumstances, if you find that the mind is really wild and going back to the same problem over and over again and can't let go of the problem, and there are such problems in one's life at times. They're also impermanent, of course. They will also go away. But at this moment in time, that's not much of a consolation because it hasn't gone away yet. So at that time, insight is more useful than calm because calm is what we'd like to get, but we can't get it, so we've got to do something else. And when we see ourselves as these bits and pieces, and that what we identify with, this body actually consisting of all that. Oh, you can add the hair and the nails and the teeth and all that too, and the eyes. It's all very useful. Add all that stuff too. Then the mind does become a little calmer because it sees the futility of hanging on to problems. There's nothing there to hang on to. It's all just a body and a mind, and we hang on to the way we think they ought to be. <laughs>